0: Welcome back to another episode of Crush and Lemons. As always, my name is Ryan, and I'll be your host each episode. As the old saying goes, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Here on Crush and Lemons, we're dedicated to sharing the inspirational stories of our guests each week who've persevered through life's challenges. On today's episode, our special guest is Stefka, and she's going to share her story about what she was teaching in the classroom, was actually happening to her in real life, and how that turned into research and ultimately a published book. And now it's time to sit back, relax, grab some lemonade, and join Stefka and I as we sit down and talk about how she was able to take her lemon moment and make her very own lemonade. Lemonade. So welcome back, everybody, for another full-length episode of Crush and Lemons, and we have a very special guest with us today. And like always, I'll kick it, off, or I'll let her kick off the episode by introducing herself.
1: Hey everyone, I am Stevka. I teach at Michigan Tech. I've been uh, in the UP for ten years, um, and before that, I used to live in LA. So I got used to the snow, and I got used to the place, and now I call myself a happy Uper.
0: <laughs> so Stefka's is another uh, network connection and friend that I made while I went to school at Michigan Tech and while I was trying to come up with various people to be on the show she was definitely on my list and we've actually been trying to get this scheduled for a couple of months now um, and it has to do with kind of the topic she's going to talk about a little bit so I don't want to give away too much information um, but I'm so excited that we were able to find some time and have you join me here today um, for an episode.
1: Thank you for having me, Ryan. Uh, It's really exciting to talk about um, my experience with media uh, since we're on a podcast, uh, because it's interesting to think about how do you experience the media around you? Um, What kind of choices are you given? Uh, How do you find similar media that you engage with? Um, And this is something that I wanted to uh, talk and write about, uh, because as a scholar of digital media, I found myself in a filter bubble. And it took me a couple of weeks to realize that the stuff that I was teaching was happening to me, and I wasn't even realizing it. So I want to talk today about filter bubbles, algorithmic culture, and the ways in which um, algorithms make media selections for us.
0: In in our day and age, there's so many algorithms and automation when it comes to social media that... Sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on. And so to have people that are really looking into this to dive in and figure things out, um, I think that's really cool. Because even though I dabble in social media, I have zero formal training. So I just kind of wing it and try to figure it out as I go.
1: Yes. And social media is uh, c- connected to a consumer Uh, system uh, to an advertising system Uh, so all our activity is connected to uh, things that we should purchase or things that we should consume and I think that's the biggest problem of it Um, but the other issue that I find with social media is that uh, it tries to give you to give you more of the same so if it figures out that you like country music your Spotify playlist tries to give you more of what it thinks you would like Uh, And it doesn't really offer you much of variety in terms of things that you might stumble on or things that might be different. So it tries to create kind of a profile, like about who you are, what would you like, and then to fulfill this particular profile with suggestions um, so that you will stay and consume a little bit longer. So for example, if you're listening to a podcast about sports, it figures out that you're a sports podcast kind of gal, and then this is what it's going to try to give you. Uh, even though you might have other interests. so And that's kind of problematic, I think, because first of all, we don't experience the same type of media. So my podcast list and someone else's podcast lists are very different and same point with social media. We don't see the same thing. We don't have the same views. Um, and then uh, we're also not exposed to each other's views. So I don't necessarily see what people who think differently might be seeing. Uh, and in this sense, I think I'm missing out.
0: So you mentioned that you were kind of going through some of these things in your classroom and you had the realization that you were, this was happening to you all around you as you were taking in that media. So what was that moment like for you when you kind of had that realization that this is something that you wanted to dig into and really understand and be passionate about?
1: It was interesting because um, I was noticing two things, Uh, things that I would type or make notes on my phone would show up on my Facebook page. So um, like if, I'm making, if I was making a note that I need to go to the grocery store or there's particular things I would need to buy that I will get a particular type of uh, kind of advertisement <laughs> reminding me that I should be doing that and that's not mm-hmm. a little strange. Um, but also just the cost of information. It seemed kind of homogenous and uh, to a point in which I was wondering why am I seeing some messages that are kind of the same? And they were not messages from friends, they were from news outlets. So seeing the Huffington Post, The New Yorker, NPR, posting on the same topic exclusively on my feed over and over and over. Um, And it was interesting because I had given the lecture, but then I was like, "But maybe that's what's in the news. Maybe all the news are about this one event, like this is what's happening in the world. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? You're in a theater, bubble.
0: (laughs) And I I feel like a lot of people can relate to that because I know I've even experienced it. Um, I'll be having a conversation or I'll look one thing up once on Google and all of a sudden there's ads to buy that on Amazon or get it here or there there it is, and you're just kind of scratching your head, and you're like, did I only think about this, and did it magically show up, or where's this information coming from, and so it, it's kind of an interesting place that we're living in right now with so much of that information that's kind of freely flowing, especially out to advertisers and people that are basically trying to buy our information.
1: Yes, and uh, they try to buy our information so that they can create types or typologies of us. So it's not innocent, right? Um, There have been suggestions by the IMF that um, our credit cards credit scores should be linked to our um, social media or browsing history, right? So that the decisions that are made about us based on our social media browsing or profile. Um, So I have to share something funny. So my lemon uh, from this week was faith. Facebook was figuring that I ski, downhill ski. And for some reason, um, I've been watching like a French uh, comedy on on Netflix and uh, it decided that I like foreign languages. So I put together skiing with, with, she likes uh, foreign or like uh, alternative French cinema. So it came up with a Nordstrom um, rhinestone-embedded goggles for $900. <laughs> that's my target demographic. right? So she's kids and she watches alternative uh, avant-garde French cinema, so she must be into expensive things. <laughs> Put them together,
0: <laughs> rhinestone goggles. <laughs> oh, gosh. That, that's hysterical.
1: <laughs> so, um, But on the serious side, um, I think that social media is creating uh, the, Or perpetuating division um, because it's really difficult to see what people who hold different views from you see on social media. So it's very hard to have a conversation when we're not experiencing the same reality.
0: And I think that's a very important point that you bring up and not that I want to dive into this topic too much, but especially because we just had an election season and a change of presidents in the United States And to not be able to see those other points of views and other ideology, it can become blinding and kind of like funnel vision of, well, I'm seeing everything that I agree with, therefore it must be right. Um, And you kind of lose out on that constructive conversations as you're exchanging viewpoints and kind of coming into those various ideas.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is a big part of it. Um, And we get used to uh, these worlds which are completely in agreement with ourselves. So we almost, we're creating a mirror world of ourselves, right? This is not the real world, but this is what our worlds are made out of. For me, it's downhill skiing and rhinestones, apparently. (laughs) And Bernie memes. I get lots of Bernie memes. Almost every other post is a Bernie meme right now. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, we expect them to see the world outside of us as the world that's mirrored in social media. And we saw that with the exodus uh, into Gab, uh, right? Um, In which now we see displacement of whole communities of people onto another social platform in which they're going to be guaranteed no disagreement or no opposing views. And I don't think that this is healthy. I think that we need to engage with each other in a dialogue. We need to speak with people who do not share our views. uh, And we need to engage in a genuine conversation and listen.
0: I completely agree with you one hundred percent, and it's difficult because people don't like being told that they're wrong, and when you're having those conversations with people that have different viewpoints, that's basically what's happening is in most cases, somebody's telling you your idea or opinion is wrong, and as humans, we don't like to hear that.
1: Yes, um, but I think that the lack of exposure to difference makes us even less able to uh, take any challenges onto our own worldviews, you know? Um, So I think that to some extent, we need to have uh, algorithms that are more empathetic, um, or algorithms that introduce and think about difference, um, because algorithms will sort based on likeness, and will also kind of sort based based on ranking the the ideas or things that that are relevant to you, so you can consume them. Uh, and this is what we um, were exploring at Michigan Tech with IPAC, the Institute of Ethics, Policy, and Culture, in the fall of 2019. And then we wrote the book on algorithmic culture um, because we found algorithms to be so pervasive in society and and touching on so many different points that um, just the lecture series seemed to be not enough, and we, we had more to say, and we did.
0: Well, and that kind of, I think brings us to kind of the, the lemonade side of things and your lemon moment, you kind of realized you were in this society where we are kind of being observed and we're trying to be spoon fed what we want to see here and by, and you decided to take action and learn about that. Um, and then ultimately there's this book that came out of it. So do you want to kind of talk about that some?
1: Sure. Thank you. So this is a book that we, uh, I quoted it with Sun Kwan Kong who, who teaches in the school of business and Jennifer Slack who teaches in the humanities. Um, and we wrote about, um, the bias in algorithms and we wrote about the transition from what we knew as digital media to this new, this now new algorithmic media. Uh, because what we noticed that was that there was, was a change that happened from digital media, which was kind of like web pages, um, to this new world in which um, a web page is connected to a vacuum cleaner and a surveillance system, and you watch, uh, <laughs> uh, and to a future that uh, maybe leads, leads to neural links. So we are moving away from a which in, from a world in which we can talk about algorithmic media or digital media to a world in which. We have to think about the Internet of Things um, and media is now a technology that's everywhere in places we didn't think would be connected to media, right? So your Roomba, your Alexa, right? Um, now Google is thinking about wearable technology that's embedded in your quotes, right? Um, all that information is connected to what we used to think of media, right? Social media and Facebook and Amazon uh, in order to kind of connect to an advertising world and to a consumer world. So we found that there's some interesting and important conversations to be had. One of them is the question of where do people fit in? Even in media, people used to be um, moderators, right? Uh, When you had, when you were thinking like, okay, so what should we include uh, in as related links for this podcast, a human being will sit there and think about what are the relevant terms, right? What are the relevant ideas? What are some of the or contested ideas what else should this person know about in relation to this podcast right now the podcast becomes data the algorithms figure out which word i said the most and classifies the podcast according to the word and then connects other or connect to other things that use similar language or similar topics so i think decision making making is being taken away from um humans in some sense. And we have to think about what are the ethics of decision-making? What is our agency? And uh, what choices do we have?
0: Yeah. And I I feel like I can see that in my daily life as well. Um, you mentioned that media and technologies in places that we never really imagined um and like you mentioned I've got an Amazon device we've got them throughout our house we've got our lights are all automatic so we can say turn this on turn this off we've got the the robot vacuum a robot mop like so we've got all this technology between my roommates and I and In your head, it's like, oh, yeah, this is great. It makes life easier. Um, But like you said, every time you say something into one of those devices, that becomes a data point. And the thing that always I find funny is people argue, well, you're intruding on my privacy. Well, you bought the device. And you agreed to use it and you didn't read the terms and conditions, which means you gave them the rights to use all of this data to then try to turn around and use those algorithms to feed you back what they think you want to see in here.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Um, that We we do give up some of our rights for the sake of convenience. Right? It's convenient to say, turn on the lights or, or set my temperature to 75. I mean, those are all conveniences. Um I wish that, that the companies that were using our data were more transparent about the ways in which they use it. Um, that would be my point of intervention to say, you know what, if you're going to sell my data to a third party, I would like to know about this in a more transparent manner and a manner that I can understand uh, and I can um, kind of agree or disagree. Because right now, if you if you don't accept the terms, you can't use the product, right? You don't really have a choice to say, um, I would like my nest, but please don't send data to
0: Google. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or if you're going to sell my data, at least give me a piece of the pie. Can't I earn (laughs) a little bit of money for my own data? (laughs) Um, So kind of reflecting back on the writing of your book, what was kind of the most difficult thing going from this idea to then having a tangible end product as a finished book?
1: Um, So we distributed a call for papers because we wanted to see what other scholars were thinking. And um, we got quite a few submissions and we had to figure out um, what would make a coherent whole. So we couldn't include everybody who had ideas to contribute. And I think not being able to address all of the viewpoints that came through was difficult and it spoke to the, f- to the scope of the project. Um, so one book is probably not sufficient. Um, I'm glad we are community of scholars working, um, but it also spoke to the Enormity of the normative of, of the problem. I mean, algorithms are so pervasive that it takes all of us working together to start addressing it for every single point available or possible um, because they're affecting. So, right, there's research that's being done on algorithms and sound. Uh, there was an article in, on the, in The Verge the other day about Pro Tools uh, and the way they encode bias, uh, cameras encode bias, um, because facial recognition technology and camera technology has historically been biased against people with dark skin. Again, the language here against minorities, again, Black Americans, again, against Hispanic Americans. Uh, and and um, so those are just two examples. And we found bias across the spectrum of the society. So I think. Pairing down to what would make a book about algorithmic culture was a difficult, difficult decision.
0: Well, and this is kind of a side tangent. You mentioned biases in the initial programming. So a while back, myself, another friend who's an engineer and a friend who's a coder, we got into a little bit of a a butting of heads in argument when we were discussing the topic of self-driving cars. And how do you equate the value of a life in programming for a self-driving car? You've got your passenger, but what happens if there's somebody outside the vehicle in your path? And what if you can't stop safely? And how do you both ethically and effectively program these tools and devices to not show biases, but still make the right decision? And it's just, it's a problem that's going to keep getting bigger and bigger as we start to automate and make things more computer driven and letting the algorithms make those decisions and take away the human factor.
1: Absolutely. And I think that, um, we need to, re- we need to reposition uh, people and we need to reposition the humans, uh, because question things like ethics or morals, right. Or uh, consciousness, those are human, Attributes or, or empathy, even uh, right? There is an attempt to teach robots empathy, and I don't know if robots will ever understand empathy. That would be prove <laughs> 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 me wrong, but not yet. <laughs> um, so Georgia Tech did a study on self-driving cars, and because they have facial recognition technology that historically, you know, even since Kodak, since the Shirley Card, it discriminates against dark-skinned subjects, they found that the camera in the self-driving car was not detecting dark-skinned subject as persons. So it was more likely to actually kill a dark-skinned subject, right? Because they were not being detected. And this is not AI is just one link in this history of technology that has been encoded with bias. So it's not like AI is by itself biased somehow. Those are technological biases that have existed in the systems of vision for over a hundred years.
0: Well, and it can also come back to the bias of the person who wrote the code. Which then, like you said, if this has been over time, you have compounding issues that just keep kind of infecting and are in that system in the long run. And it's very hard from both a physical and a technological standpoint to, quote unquote, fix everything and make it perfect because they're just there's not a perfect formula when you're trying to put computing with human life and all of that into one package
1: and you bring a great point about employment and about teams um, what we have noticed and one of the chapters in the book addresses that is that um, we we are thinking we're talking about diversity of teams but we also need to think about diversity of viewpoints because what happens with uh, the contemporary moment is that we have monocultures right we have uh, groups of people who share a certain cultural view or a certain perspective on life. And if someone in co- someone else comes into the group, they need to adapt to, to this dominant view, right? So we're not really allowing for a diversity of cultural views or perspectives uh, in combining those themes. So yes, physical like identity diversity is important, but so is diversity of perspectives. And it shouldn't be a point in which everybody needs to think, group think, right? Everybody needs to think the same. Um, and, um, AI does articulate that by filtering, um, a lot of the virtual, um, interviews and a lot of the resumes, uh, to fit a particular profile. And we saw that with Amazon, where the algorithm was excluding, uh, candidates who had anything to do with women's, um, activities, women's colleges, um, women's soccer clubs, so as long as it could figure out that the college was a women's college or you are part of a women's uh, enterprise, uh, the um, algorithm kicked off the resume as uh, ineligible. Um, and then the other component of that is um, video interviews. So a lot of the time uh, when you are giving a video interview, there is an algorithm behind the interview, judging your facial expression, your tone of voice, um, And it's making uh, judgments about how employable are you um, on metrics that can be problematic and are embedded in histories of, I would say, at some point uh, dubious calculations. You know, Um, there is a project that's called "How Normal Are, uh, Are You?" It's coming from the European Union, and there it will tell you what the AI thinks, whether you're happy, it will read your emotion. Uh, it will characterize you as distracted or focused uh, because it does eye tracking. It will calculate your age. Um, so it's making all kinds of um, judgments. Um, and those judgments are then being passed as qualities that make you either employable or not.
0: That just it, that blows my mind, all the technology that goes into these kinds of things and during my time at Michigan Tech I worked for career services so I worked with students on how to write resumes for applicant tracking systems how to do video interviews and things like that but there's so much more to it even when you think you know how to beat the system so that you can at least be looked at by another human they go and change the algorithm again and what you thought you knew is no longer valid
1: and that's the problem we need to know what the rules are we can't constantly be playing against a chess master or an opponent who is not transparent? Who's completely oblique? I mean, we have to constantly adjust, but we don't know how we're being measured, right? Um, do I keep my eyebrows up or down? Right? What do you think of my forehead? <laughs> that's <the> a <laughs> big question. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> we need to ha- we need to- we need to have more clarity. This needs to be a partnership. Right? We need to understand the expectations. We shouldn't sure have to be thinking that the algorithm is some kind of a mechanical Turk that we constantly have to beat, right? And guess. Um, I think that that's a moral imperative on the part of algorithm makers to be more transparent.
0: So kind of reflecting on that statement, knowing everything that you guys were up against as you were trying to do this research, develop this book, what kind of encouraged you guys to keep pushing forward and trying to dig deeper and find the information and be able to continue this project, even though those variables were changing at a pretty rapid pace?
1: That's a great question. And I feel like uh, we had to just take a snapshot because it has been a moving target. Even since the book came out, there are new elements of um, algorithmic technology, the new places with algorithmic technologies is moving. So we're we're taking a snapshot and we're saying in this moment, here are the points of intervention. Um, for example, the first military plane was formed by II in December, right? So we have constant um, change and it it is a moving target. And I think that we need to be working constantly and diligently uh, to make sure that we're offering points of intervention uh, because this idea of a moving target also means that we are in a dynamic space in a space in which everything is changing and we can still change things for the better. So things are not set in stone, right? We are still able to intervene. We're able to talk about the issues and the issues can be fixed. So We don't always have to continue down the path of algorithms that work the same way. We can point to the problems and make those algorithms more equitable, uh, less biased, and more attuned to difference. So the good part is that we can intervene, we're in an active time of change, we're not in a stalemate.
0: Well, in what you were just saying there, I feel like that can apply to a variety of situations as well. Because as, as humans, we're going through some difficult times and trying to figure things out, and other people may be struggling with that moving target and not being able to figure out how can I overcome this, and kind of looking at it that way of taking a snapshot, kind of focusing on that. You can always update and adapt in the future again, but don't get overwhelmed by all of the things at one time. Kind of focus on that that one area until you figured it out, and then... Address the next issue or obstacle or lemon moment as it brings itself up.
1: Absolutely. And those lemon moments are what make life interesting and what challenges us to, to be better people. You know, without lemon moments, can you imagine never having a lemon moment? I think that would be kind of boring. Grow, right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, just like diamonds, you you need that, that's constant pressure beaten down on you so that you can (laughs) go from coal into a sparkly gemstone someday.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I think that challenges are good. We should be challenging ourselves, um, and we should be helpful uh, and kind and, and empathetic to others. Um, and I think that it's good. It's a good philosophy to think about change as constant because, um, really what we are seeing in a moment, we can freeze a moment and we can look at it much like a photograph, right? Which a photograph kind of freezes the moment and you can reflect back on this moment, but the moment already passed, the the moment you start reflecting about the your situation, you're already in a new situation. You, you always have the opportunity for change. Right. So every day is a new day in in this sense.
0: So if there was one piece of advice you could give somebody as they're going through maybe multiple lemon moments, trying to figure things out, what would that piece of advice be, do you think?
1: my piece of advice is to talk to people around you, uh, to turn around and to look at, the, at your uh, friends, at your coworkers, at your neighbors, um, and um, to share, to have a conversation and share. Because what you f- might find out is that everybody has different lemons. And uh, in thinking about our lemons, we can come up with a better lemonade it's just that, that is diverse, that is inclusive, Um, so a community lemonade, (laughs) you might not feel so alone if you think that you only, you're the only one with the lemons.
0: And that is a fantastic point to make, especially with this idea of social media and algorithms and being shown what the, the machines think we want to is there are other people out there who are struggling, who are going through these lemon moments. So nobody should ever feel like they're alone trying to overcome these because it's easy to reach out even to the, the people close to you and realize that they're struggling with something as well and by coming together like you said as a diverse community we can help each other overcome those lemon moments
1: wonderful point i love the way you phrased
0: it <laughs> <laughs> uh, ali keeps telling me i'm really good at summing things yes, up yes you are uh,
1: amazing at summing
0: things up. i agree <laughs> So we're coming close to the end of our episode here today. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up the the show?
1: Um, one point about history. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. <laughs>
1: um, because algorithms are seen as something new, and I would have to say um, it's good to think about um, things that are new uh, as are, are things that are changing, but also to think about the value in, in uh, skills that might be outdated um, and because. Every single technology, every single moment uh, brings the possibility for innovation and for creativity. So don't discard um, kind of old fashioned modes of, of, of doing things. And I'm talking about media, you know, like vinyls and analog cameras and um, paper books. Uh, they have a role to play in our society
0: as well. I, I 100% agree. I mean, people can't see it, but I'm literally grabbing a big old <laughs> hardcover paper book right now because I just love the feel of a, a book in my hands as opposed to a digital copy yeah. of things.
1: And it's not one or the other. We don't have to be exclusive to say we're only going to be living in algorithmic world. Um, algorithms are here to stay, but it doesn't mean that we have to forego Um, all of the other modes of communication that we have been uh, engaged with prior.
0: I think that is kind of a great way to wrap up today's episode. Um, If people wanted to kind of follow along or connect with you or find the book, what's the the easiest place for them to locate that information?
1: So the the book is called Algorithmic Culture, how um, big data and artificial intelligence are transforming everyday life. Uh, and it's available on the publisher website as well on, on Amazon. And, uh, if you need to reach out, I am at Michigan Tech and you can find me at Stefka Christopher, uh, Michigan Tech. I'll, I show up in Google, in the Google search. I'm pretty high on the algorithm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and if people are looking to get a copy of that book or get in touch with you, I'll definitely put that information in the description of today's podcast Thank you so, so much. that it's easy for them to be able to find that.
1: I appreciate it, Ryan. It's always a pleasure well, thank- to talk to you.
0: Yes, this was definitely a highlight of my week, getting to catch up. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to sit down virtually with me um, and share your story.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: As always, thanks for joining us for another episode of Crush and Lemons. And a huge shout out to Stefka for sharing her story, which will hopefully help other people who may be struggling with similar situations. If you want to learn more about this podcast, check out our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at and Lemons and send us a tweet with ideas for future episodes. And if you or someone you know would be interested in being one of our future guests, send us a note to crushinlemons at gmail.com. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with someone you know and consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming service you've listened to today. It really helps us grow. If you're dealing with your own lemon moment, just remember you're never alone. There's always other people out there who've gone through similar things. We look forward to sharing more stories with you in the future. In the meantime, keep an ear out for when our next episode drops and work to turn your lemon moments into your very own lemonade.